Welcome back for the second hour of The Big Broadcast with Mark Magistrelli and Mike Martini. We continue now on our special Big Broadcast. We heard The War of the Worlds, the original 1938 broadcast in the first hour. And we're going to delve a little deeper. Was, would this be like an Easter egg if you were going through a DVD back in the 90s or 2000s? I don't even know if they do that anymore. This is a way for us to get a little deeper into the historic nature of War of the Worlds. This was a recently rediscovered broadcast that we didn't know we had. Our good friend Dr. King came across this what, two days ago. Yep. He emailed us saying, you're not going to believe what I found. This was the original kaleidoscope that aired on WJR. As far as I know, it only aired once and never again. So we said, hey, let's stop what we're doing and find a way to integrate this since we're doing a big War of the Worlds evening. And Mike does a marvelous job talking about the history of the program and how the panic came to happen. One of the people that Mike reached out to was the multi-hyphenate comedian, actor, producer, songwriter, you name it, Steve Allen. Now, I interviewed Steve around 95. If I had known that yeah. he actually heard War of the Worlds, I would have asked him about that too. But Mike knew something I didn't know and got this from Mr. Allen, and we'll get to hear from him. This broadcast was done in 1998, but this is the first time we're hearing it. Mike Worf on Kaleidoscope with his look at the night that panicked America, War of the Worlds on the big broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. So began the radio dramatization. Critics would later say it was radio's moral equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded theater. Fans would call it the ultimate thriller of H.G. Wells' novel, The War of the Worlds. It plunged tens of thousands of unsuspecting listeners across the nation into sheer panic, convinced that Martians had invaded Earth, first touching down in New Jersey. In Newark, reported a newspaper the next morning, more than 20 families rushed out of their homes with wet towels over their faces to flee what they believed was a gas raid. Reproached the New York Times, the broadcast disrupted households, interrupted religious services, created traffic jams and clogged communications systems, causing adults to seek medical treatment for shock and hysteria. The October 30th broadcast was meant by Mercury Theater host Orson Welles to be a Halloween prank. No one, including Orson Welles, thought radio could have such a devastating impact on listeners who, missing the show's explanatory opening credits, tuned in late and caught urgent news flashes. No show before or since on radio or television sent people from Maine to California racing into the streets hysterical. The broadcast made 23-year-old Orson Welles an overnight celebrity, and it remains the most famous single incident in radio history. This is your host, Mike Worf, with Kaleidoscope. Let us turn to this story, a story from radio history, one I call The Night the Martians Landed. The radio broadcast that Sunday evening, October 30th in the year of 1938, began unremarkably enough 
with a weather forecast followed by dance music from a New York City hotel ballroom. But then Raymond Requello and his orchestra were interrupted by a news bulletin about the gas explosions on the planet Mars. Next came a report from a seismographic shock of earthquake intensity near Princeton, New Jersey. An astronomer on the scene described what seemed to be a meteorite half-burned in a pit until it opened up, revealing a grotesque creature inside. Coming out of that black hole, two luminous disks, the eyes, it might be a face, might be almost... Good heavens, something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. Oh, yeah, I can see the thing's body now. It's large. It's large as a bear. Gristles like wet leather, but that face. Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is that's kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seems to oh, those quiver and pulsate. And the monster, or whatever it is, can hardly move. It seems weighed down by possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen, I can't find words and... Well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. Suddenly, a jet of flame burst from the pit, incinerating the astronomer and several policemen. Following more dance music, a terrified announcer again interrupted to report one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns had been trampled under the metal feet of the Martian invader or burned to cinders by its horrible heat ray. The announcer went on to say that thousands of people were stampeding through the streets of New York City. Thousands more, he said, had leaped into the East River, dropping in like rats. Poisonous gas blanketed the city. The announcer was choking to death, and Martian cylinders were falling all over the country. Finally, the desperate voice of an amateur shortwave radio operator was heard, weakly reaching out into the void with one last question. Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? Isn't there anyone? And then there was silence. An intermission, a calm voice informed the audience that it was listening to Orson Welles' dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. But by then, it was too late. People had fled to the streets convinced the Martians had indeed landed. The fictional reports of a national crisis had generated an actual one, and the consequences were staggering. Hysterical callers jammed police, newspapers and radio switchboards throughout the United States and Canada, begging for advice on how to protect themselves. An Ohio man phoned the New York Times to ask what time the world would end. Others wanted to know when the wave of poison gas would reach them, or whether the police had extra gas masks. A Pittsburgh man rushed home to find his wife with a bottle of poison. I'd rather die this way than like that, she screamed. Physicians and nurses called into police stations and hospitals to volunteer their services. And on a single block in Newark, New Jersey, more than 20 families fled from their homes holding those wet towels to their faces. After frantically loading possessions onto their cars, they caused a tie-up that snarled traffic for blocks. Weeping callers besieged the electric company in Providence, Rhode Island, employing officials to turn off all lights to protect the city from the enemy. The hysteria spread to such an extent that hundreds told police and newspapers they had actually seen the invasion.
Back at CBS, those responsible for the pandemonium were themselves approaching a state of shock. They had not foreseen the impact. At one point, they had even feared the broadcast might be too boring to go ahead with. John Hausman shook his head in amazement as he remembered that night. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds, as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes, slowly and surely drew their plans against us. John Hausman would go on to a distinguished career as a writer, producer, director, teacher, and actor. In 1938, he was co-founder with Orson Welles of the Mercury Theater of the Air, a CBS radio program that, after four months, was drawing only 3.6% of the listening audience against ventriloquist Edgar Bergen's 34.7% on NBC. The War of the Worlds, their 17th broadcast, almost didn't even make it to the air. Recall John Hausman, the whole thing came about sort of by default. We had a script of Lorna Doom. But it turned out to be so boring, we decided it was time we did a science fiction show. Whether out of laziness or because we didn't find the right thing, we fell back on the old H.G. Wells novel. Writer Howard Koch had just come to work for us, and we assigned him to this project. But after about three days, he called me and said, This is hopeless. It's, it's a very, very dull show, and I can't do anything with it. Osmond cajoled Karch into persevering, and after more discussion, they decided the only way to make the script work was for it to be as real and contemporary as possible, as if it were really actually occurring, said Hausman. The minute that decision was made, the whole thing fell into place. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. Near the end of October, business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios. Hausman said it never occurred to them that people might believe an actual invasion was taking place. I quote, about 25 minutes into the show, our supervisor got a call in the control room, and he suddenly got up and ran out. Hausman recalled, he returned six or seven minutes later, white as a sheet, and in a great state of agitation. John, stop the show right now, right now! Hausman refused. He and the supervisor continued their argument until the broadcast reached its scheduled break. 
Then the phone calls started coming in, Hausman said. The switchboards were flooded. It was evident that something really was up. We didn't know exactly what. The second half of the show, after the conquest, was totally innocuous. But by then, it didn't matter. The damage had been done. As soon as the show was over, CBS officials rushed in and snatched all the scripts and ushered Orson and myself into a little room. Then the press arrived. The press was very mean. Wells and Hausman were deluged with hostile questions about vast numbers of people killed in traffic accidents, crowd stampedes, and suicides. We were absolutely petrified, Hausman said. We really believed we were mass murderers. It was not until the next morning that we read the truth of the matter, that there hadn't actually been any deaths, but there had been panic. Looking back, Hausman had several explanations for the extraordinary reaction to the broadcast. First, at the beginning of the hour, most listeners had been tuned to Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy on NBC and had therefore missed the opening disclaimer on CBS telling them that a dramatization of H.G. Wells's famous novel was about to be performed. Twelve minutes into the hour, at the conclusion of the first act, the Bergen show took a commercial break and many listeners started twisting their dials in search of other entertainment. As a result, Hausman said... Most people tuned in just at the point where the Martians were opening up their cylinder and killing the first of the police and newspaper men. The second factor was the political anxiety of the times, fueled by the signing of the Munich Pact between England and Hitler's Germany only weeks earlier. Was Europe going to war or not going to war? This was a very hot question, Hausmann explained. Hitler had been in power for several years. Everything was beginning to look pretty rotten, and people had become accustomed to looking to that little box for crisis news. And finally, Hausmann admitted with a grin, we did some naughty things. We used every trick we could. The voice of the so-called Secretary of the Interior was provided by a very good actor who, way beyond his instructions, made him sound like FDR. And Orson was very audacious in his direction. The show started very slowly and boringly. There were long silences. It's a sort of model of what you can do on radio to eliminate any sense of time and create credibility about events that, if you used your brain, you must realize... It would happen over several days. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area, and we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us.
This is your host, Mike Worf. The program is Kaleidoscope. We turn to the night the Martians landed. One of the most bizarre events in broadcasting, a modest science fiction program was taken for real by thousands of listeners. Halloween, 1938. Why did the public fall for the invasion? Much has been written about the matter. In 1938, Americans were less informed, more gullible, more trusting of the media, and largely unfamiliar with the notion of a media hoax. And two, newspapers had been warning of a major war in Europe. Many people later claimed that they thought the invaders were not creatures from Mars, but Nazis from Germany in hideous disguise. Then, too, few actors could read a script as convincingly as Orson Welles. As I set down these notes on paper, I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on Earth. I've been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life. Life that has no continuity with the present. Furtive existence of the lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my, my world. Where are they? Everyone agreed. Even today, there are those who remember how convincingly the program was enacted. I've known a couple of people who can vaguely remember some of the program, but none so clearly as a guest who joins us to let us know what he recalls from his boyhood in Chicago and that Halloween night in 1938. May I introduce television... Radio, theatrical performer, Mr. Steve Allen. Whether my uh, recollections constitute insight is a separate question. First of all, perhaps again we should explain to young, young people who don't even know what we're talking about yet, it was a program, a dramatic show by Orson Welles, the, the famous uh, later actor and film star and uh, director. But it wasn't presented as a drama. It was presented as a newscast, a news coverage, the way news to this day, the news media... Uh, medium covers uh, any important public event, a disaster, an earthquake, a hurricane, whatever. They have cameras on the scene. And in those days, they would dispatch uh, microphones, of course, and, and uh, men who would tell you what was going on. 
whether he intended to do so or not is not quite clear, but he fooled a very large part of uh, the national audience. And I remember at the next day on the way to school, I saw a headline that said 17 million panicked, something how they arrived at that figure, I don't know, but it, it did panic people all across the nation. And the reason I remember it so clearly is that uh, my mother, my aunt, and I, who were all there was to our family at that moment, were among that 17 million. Now, the people who didn't hear the show and who later heard that a lot of us believed it, I think thought very little of our intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in many cases, they were probably right about that. But uh, the reason it fooled people is that not everyone who listens to this day to any show, TV or radio, hears it from the beginning. Now, if you heard, you know, Orson Welles say, good evening, it's time for so forth, of course you didn't think that what followed was a newscast. But in my case, I was uh, fiddling around the dial while doing some homework. I think I was about, I don't know, 16 or so at the Oh, time. so you did actually hear it. Oh, I heard everything. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, to jump to uh, out of the narrative and to a later point, uh, I participated about three or four years ago with the uh, award-winning recreation of that, which, believe it or not, was better than the original because they got better actors uh, in the new version. It was done for public radio and uh, is a, a classic of its own. Of course, it didn't fool anybody because they knew then what was coming. Certainly. But in the original version, as I was saying, I happened to be looking for music, just for a little uh, background, and I heard some, and I went back to my books. I was on the floor. And suddenly an announcer's voice said something like, we interrupt this uh, you know, program by George Forrest and his orchestra to bring you this news bulletin from CBS. And uh, if anybody to this day said that to you, you would believe what you heard. There's mm -hmm. nothing, you know, the, the news people don't intentionally lie to us. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, we've heard something about strange gaseous explosions having been perceived uh, by astronomers on the planet Mars, and now we return you to the program in progress. Yes. Well, at that point, if that was the first thing you heard, you were hooked, and, and we were among the hooked. Obviously, if other people had heard a commercial earlier and so forth, they would know it wasn't the real thing. So uh, they described, uh, based on the original account of, of a story by H.G. Wells called War of the Worlds, they described the strange uh, vehicles uh, landing from outer space, and we now would believe that if it happened. In fact, there's a lot of people who believe it on the basis of no real evidence, whatever. So this, in this case, we, we trusted CBS News, <laughs> and the descriptions get, got more and more scary, and uh, there were locations from different uh, points of view, and it was remarkably convincing. Of course, they had to pass laws immediately that radio directors and producers and writers couldn't use that technique uh, ever in the future without making it absolutely clear that it was drama, but yeah. I've, I've never forgotten that. In fact, I've written about it uh, in, an, well, one of my new books called High host Steve Reno has a uh, an account that a lot of people have told me is funny to read because it shows the effect on us, you know, three nuts squawking off into the night like startled chickens because we believed that said on the radio some of the uh, space vehicles had been sighted over Chicago, which is where we were at the moment. The War of the Worlds was a milestone event in American broadcasting. For the first time John Hosman observed, it proved how potent the mass media were, particularly radio which people had never really thought about before. There seems to be no question about the fact that Orson Welles was a supremely talented performer, and here to give testimony to his ability is the brilliant writer, producer, director of radio, Mr. Norman Corwin. He was a genius uh, in that he did so many things so well. Uh, of course, that great voice, and he, 
he was a sensitive and intelligent uh, actor and uh, the driving force of the Mercury Theatre, of course, and uh, I was happy to be associated with him in several productions. He did indeed play the role of Nero, the principal role in the plot to overthrow Christmas at one time when it was done out of Hollywood. Although I did not direct it, I asked for him to direct it because I was on the East Coast. Uh, I felt that, uh, in a way, the War of the Worlds uh, was uh, a misfortune in that it catapulted him too fast uh, to a world eminence. It gave him a wonderful entree to Hollywood, where he did, of course, Citizen Kane, but he, he was almost too rich a mixture, too rich a formula for Hollywood, because he had an experimental outlook, and he did things which uh, ran over budget, and uh, I felt when I said earlier that he came up too fast, I think that uh, he was so popular uh, that he was attracted in too many ways by too many different media and projects, and thus he scattered his ammunition. But he still was puissant. He was a powerful uh, figure right up until the time he died. A childhood prodigy who achieved early success as an actor and director, Orson Welles was pronounced the wonder boy of Broadway, and then the genius director and star of the movie classic Citizen Kane. Even before he turned 30, however, some were dismissing him as a has-been, a verdict that shadowed his career right up to his death in 1985 at the age of 70. Welles spent most of his life fighting his image as an artist whose brilliance was hopelessly derailed by his erratic, self-destructive, and frequently insufferable personality. Sadly, among many, Wells may be remembered more for his work as the corpulent spokesman for a company that promised to sell no wine before its time. Back in 1938, the night, the Martians landed. A radio pioneer himself, Mike Worf, with the Kaleidoscope program from his WJR days of the War of the Worlds on tonight's big broadcast. I would say exclusively on tonight's big broadcast. I'd agree. What always astonishes me when I hear Mike's voice today, and then I think back to meeting Mike and having dinner with him, Mike was nothing physically like the voice you imagine. Mike was a short man, very friendly, but this big, <laughs> larger-than-life voice coming out of such a little package just was, you know, rather disorienting. One thing that I have to disagree a little bit with Mike in his narration was the point of view that he had, frankly, most people still have it today, about Orson Welles' being you know, profligate, dissolute, and somewhat failed artist who did not fulfill his early promise. And there is some truth to that, but what amazes me is that 
Wells, right until the end of his life, continued finding a way, whether on a shoestring or otherwise, to convince people to write checks so that he could make these movies. Sometimes they took years to make. Uh, his films are notorious for having perhaps substandard soundtracks because he would shoot something and then get back to it maybe two or three or four, maybe more, years later when he could finally get the funding. People would age visibly because, you know, He's shooting one segment in 1962 and can't get around to getting the money together till 68. Things like that. But you know what? Few of us get the chance to do our passion projects without having somebody over our shoulder saying, uh-uh, you're spending too much. Or could you change this? By working outside of the Hollywood studio system, he had more freedom, more flexibility, more hassles, to be sure. But few of his contemporaries really could go down such a difficult road and make it work. And somehow he did. So I have to give kudos to Orson Welles. Difficult as he could have been to work with, he found a way to be productive. Well, it seems to me that every dime he got in for projects he really wasn't interested in, instead of banking or buying a new villa, he would throw that money into his projects. He believed in his projects so much that he didn't care if he had a savings account he rolled that money back in because he wanted to see these visions become reality. You know where we need to go. The Wells Collection is at Indiana University. Check them out online, but they have, I believe, the largest single repository of Orson Welles' documents, work, what have you. We need to check that out in person just to see what's there and see what interesting things we can dig up. Mike, you're always coming up with <laughs> documents that have been lost to the ages and suddenly rematerialized. So the guys at IU ought to get a hold of you. <laughs> We're going to conclude this hour of the big broadcast with a treat. This was an interview done in 2005 with the then last surviving cast member of War of the Worlds. William Hers was interviewed by Bill Nadel, not only about his experience as a member of the cast, but about his adventures as part of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater. Here's actor William Hers, better known as Operator 8X3R, from War of the Worlds, as interviewed in 2005 on tonight's big broadcast. Bill, just want to ask you a couple of questions today. Uh, would you tell us about uh, your background? And how you got into radio? Well, I went to Carnegie Tech, which is now Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, and I really took a course in theater. And uh, so I started out, I did some work for KDKA in Pittsburgh, but I really met Orson Welles in Pittsburgh. He was touring with Cornell in uh, first uh, he was playing Tybalt in uh, Romeo and Juliet and then he played Marchbanks in Canada and I had a friend in the company uh, who I had met in Detroit where I had been connected with the Bonstell Theater Bonstell Playhouse and uh, he wanted me to have supper after the performance and he introduced me to a band by the name of Orson Welles, who I didn't even know. Um, he had done some work for the Federal Theater in New York, and I think I was aware that he had done 
a production of Macbeth and also a production called Horse Eats Hat. But I didn't know very much about him. But he told me that he was going to open a theater in New York called The Mercury and that when I graduated in June, I should come and see him, which I did. And I started as a gopher. And uh, that's how I started in with Mr. Wells for the next four years. And what was he like? What was he like, Wesson? Well, he was not much older than I was, so he was young, enthusiastic, and he had been very successful with the broadcast uh, of The Shadow, which I didn't know anything about, but which I had heard had made quite an impact. And he was a genius, I suppose, if that word can be used. There aren't very many people that merit it, but in a way he did, and he was just uh, undisciplined, and there was nobody that could seem to keep him in hand, but we did some exciting things at the Mercury until he decided to go to California, where he, his first movie ever turned out to be Citizen Kane. But you didn't go with him to California. No. <laughs> it was my stupidity, but also I had lived with the Wells family uh, during Five Kings, which never came to New York, which we did with the Theater Guild, which presented all kinds of problems. And uh, I had lived in his apartment working with him, and I decided that if I went to California, I did not want to live with them. And he said I could come, and I, he would use me, but that I wouldn't get a salary. So it's one of the mistakes we make in life. Yeah, but you had an ulcer at the time, right? Well, I got an ulcer from the Five Kings. <laughs> Basically, I'm going to take you back to the, the, the rehearsal for The War of the Worlds, and that was on Thursday, October 27, 1938. And you you tell us what, what happened at the rehearsal and what you did. Orson never did the, the dress rehearsals. And I don't know why I was chosen to, to play his role, but I did. And uh, after the rehearsal... Um, Howard Koch, who had written the script from the H.G. Wells novel, and John Houseman, um, who I guess directed it, um, I went to them and I said, nobody's going to believe this for a minute. I said, we ought to go on the air cold with a dance band. And then the announcer came on and said, the Martians have just invaded New Jersey. Of course, we would all have been in jail if they had followed my suggestion because during the broadcast, there were four announcements that it was the Mercury Theater of the Air, Orson Welles' production of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. But because it was so near to the Munich crisis in Europe, everybody was nervous about the war, and there was a lot of dial twisting, which must have made this tremendous impact. But nobody connected with the show, except during the show. 
knew that it was going to cause any excitement. During the broadcast, you could see out of the CBS studio, there was a glass door and the cops were there, a lot of men in blue. <laughs> so we knew that something was going on. And it was probably uh, Mr. Taylor, who was in charge of uh, uh, CBS, is our production, really, uh, who got very nervous about what was going on because evidently the switchboard at CBS was lighting up like fire that people were calling and wanted to know what was going on. Well, a broadcast was going on that was not legitimate, really. I mean, it wasn't really happening. And the next day, um, there wasn't a paper, I think, in the world that didn't have a headline about this. So it was great PR for Mr. Wells, and it could have gone either way. By the time we got back to the theater the night of the broadcast, the press was there. We were rehearsing Danton's death, but we couldn't rehearse because uh, he was being interviewed. And I remember one reporter saying to him that a woman had been ironing her husband's pants. She was going to sue him because she burnt the pants. Well, when I heard that, I thought it was kind of funny, and I don't think it was going to be very serious. It wasn't serious, except as CBS was concerned, it was serious. And I guess it was serious about the people that got in their cars and fled. But I don't know how many people did that or how many people fled. Uh, but it certainly uh, was a panic of some kind. Uh, my friends and, and, and the people that I knew in showbiz were just, um, they were excited about it, but they, they were incredulous that it had created such an uproar. Well, uh, let me take you back to the show itself. Uh, Ray Collins plays the, the, the uh, announcer on top of the roof as it watches the Martians come in across New Jersey. Do you remember anything about Ray Collins? Well, I remember him mostly because later on when we did Native Son, he was the defense attorney, and he really should have been the prosecuting attorney, but he was the defense attorney. Um, he was a formidable radio actor. He was very well known, and um, he wasn't a, 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 a leading man type. He was a more of a character actor. Um, but he was an excellent radio actor, and um, but we had a lot of good actors in the program. Uh, Paul Stewart, um, who later uh, directed several shows on Broadway, and um, there were others. Richard Wilson. Well, Richard Wilson wasn't really an actor. He was much more of a stage manager, and um, and eventually, when he went when in California, he became Orson's assistant. And he went on to to direct many films himself later on. And. What about Stefan Schnabel, who played the observer on the on the broadcast? Well, Stefan was the uh, the son of a very famous pianist, and uh, he was a very good actor, and uh, 
did a lot of plays on Broadway, and uh, as I remember, he was very good in that. In he was also in Danton's Death, and he was in Caesar too. Now, again, let's let me take you back to the the panic. Uh, did you see people on the street panicking when you went to the theater? No. What were the streets like? Do you remember? Well, we got to Times Square. I saw the headline uh, in the Times building that um, the panic was on, but I didn't see people running in the streets, if that's what you mean. So it just, it just was in the news that there was a panic? It was panic. the news. Well, in the first place, by the time we got to the theater, it was almost midnight, so I don't think that... Uh, I really don't think that by this time, I think that most of the people had calmed down a little bit because I don't think that, that uh, it was verified anywhere by anybody. And uh, again, uh, after you left the Mercury Theater, what did you do uh, when, when you left the Mercury Theater? Well, after the Five Kings and I didn't go to California, um, I got involved in a couple of productions in New York. As a matter of fact, I produced one of Edith's plays, and um, then John Houseman sent me a script that uh, Paul Green had written from Richard Wright's novel, Native Son, and Orson was in New York for the opening of some show, I think it was Liberty Jones, and uh, he was with Dolores Del Rio, and I was to meet Hausman the next morning, and Hausman had directed the show. It was a play by Philip Berry and done by the Theater Guild, but it was not a hit. And I had read Native Son, and I said the only person that could do it was Orson. And they were st he, Orson and... Dolores were staying at the Ambassador Hotel on Park Avenue, which is now gone. And we took the script up to him, and that afternoon, Orson was up in Harlem with Canada Lee rehearsing. And so I was involved with Native Son from that time until all through its run until I went into the Army. And what did you do in the Army? I was with special services. First, I was with uh, a radio show called Contact that was produced by a man by the name of Graper Lewis. And we had a lot of people come through Florida on their way overseas to entertain the troops. Um, Sophie Tucker, Al Jolson, Lily Pons, Andre Castellanitz. It was an exciting time, and uh, then after I became a six-month wonder or three-month wonder of an officer, they put me in with the football, manage a football team, and there was nothing in Army regulations that provided for a football team, but General Arnold wanted football teams for all the servicemen so that they was for morale purposes. That was quite an experience. So the theater passed me by. 
You mentioned Edith, Edith Miser uh, briefly. You know she was script editor on The Shadow, so she got a chance to meet Orson before you did. Uh, that was the year before you, you joined, the, uh, you, you worked on the Mercury Theater broadcasts. And uh, so it was, it was quite intriguing that she actually wrote a couple of Shadow scripts along the way, and uh, in addition to Sherlock Holmes scripts that she did on radio. And another question is, how does it feel to know that you were in one of the most memorable broadcasts of the 20th century, that people remembered here nearly 70 years later? It's still remembered. It's still heard. Well, I guess it's, it's supposed to be exciting, but when you get to be my age, it's just part of, the, of, of your life. Um, first of all, I didn't think I'd live to be 89 years old, and secondly, I didn't think that would happen to that particular broadcast. I'm glad it did. I'm glad it did for many reasons. Uh, I'm sorry that, that Orson's career uh, didn't come through the way it should have come because he was without doubt uh, probably the most uh, important man in the theater that we ever had. And his potential was tremendous, but he never lived up to it. Why do you think that was? What caused that? Well, mostly because the, he was not disciplined. There was no way of disciplining this man. At one point, there was somebody that I knew that was very rich, and he said, I, I'd like to meet Mr. Wells because I have a proposition for him, and he wanted to give him a million dollars, and he was going to control him. And I said to him, unfortunately, you can't control him. So it's just, it's just unfortunate that... And he was sent by the government... Uh, to South America, this was before we became involved in the war, uh, or maybe it was just after, I don't remember, but he was sent to do a movie down there, and he ended up bankrupting RKO. He couldn't bankrupt the, the Treasury Department because they didn't give him that much money. But uh, it was unfortunate because... Um, Orson had a lot to give, but uh, and the only movie that he ever did that that he had complete control over was Citizen Kane. He didn't have it over the magnificent Andersons. They wouldn't let him even do the cutting on it. So it's that's what happens with in careers. Do you do you think do you think the uh, the broadcast? if presented in today, would, would scare anybody? Well, since there is television today, and you couldn't do it on television because nobody would believe it, I don't think you could would scare people anymore because people are not used to using their imagination, which they had to use in that period, because we had radio, period. That was our, our form of entertainment and um, was interesting that we th could see all these things in our mind's eye or in our imagination. And today you don't really have to use your imagination when you watch television. Is there a lesson to be learned from the broadcast? Would you say there was a lesson? 
Well, I think the most important lesson is that um, American public, they don't listen very well. And um, because if they had listened, there wouldn't have been a panic. Um, I do think, however, that um, we grow. I mean, it's the same thing in 9-11. I mean, uh, that was really our war of the worlds. It really ha actually happened. So, uh, again, you you often talk about uh, the the fact that that working with Orson was difficult. And uh, can you give us some more examples of how how it was so difficult? Well, I'll give you one very good example. Uh, when we were rehearsing Native Son, uh, we couldn't rehearse in the theater because they were putting in the set. And the uh, and Orson had a marvelous habit of, of rehearsing until the actors were ready to drop. And at five o'clock one morning, uh, John Houseman called me in Brooklyn and said, Orson wants to move the courtroom scene uh, into the orchestra pit, and he wants the first five rows of the orchestra to be the courtroom. And I said to Jack Hausman, I said, well, there's nothing I can do about it at five o'clock in the morning. I said, I will see tomorrow morning what I can do. And I went to the theater where I had a friend as a, a, a he was the um, cashier in the box office. And I said, we're in trouble. And he helped me out a great deal there because there were lots of tickets sold for the opening night, and we had to get those people to bring the tickets back and to change their seats elsewhere. Um, that's one instance. Another instance, um, when we were doing Five Kings, we were co-producing it with the Theater Guild, and we were supposed to have a dress rehearsal in Boston two days before the opening, and John Emery was playing Hotspur, and he was married at the time to Tallulah Bankhead. And uh, Gertrude Lawrence was playing in a show in Boston. Well, they were at the matinee, at the theater for the dress rehearsal, and there was no dress rehearsal. And the theater guild had come from New York to see the dress rehearsal, and the business manager of the theater guild had said to Mr. West, we're here to see a dress rehearsal. And Mr. Wells was not very diplomatic with them. They walked out of Boston, and they walked away from the show. So uh, we lost <clears throat> the producers, our co-producers, and they were the people that had the subscription audiences. I think we kept the audiences. but. We played four weeks in Boston, two weeks in um, Washington, and three weeks in Philadelphia where the show closed. Another question about uh, the Mercury Theater on the air. Uh, how did the, the success of, or the panic from the War of the Worlds affect the box office for Danton's death when you, you were doing Danton's death at the same time? It didn't. <laughs> Danton's death was not a good... 
Well, in the first place, it was a it was an adaptation of a foreign play, and um, Orson had decided that the background would be ten thousand masks, uh, and that was the scenery, and. Um, the actors had to run up and down stairs and things, and it was, and there was a uh, an elevator that brought actors up, and it was all about the French Revolution, and um, it was not very well received. Let's put it that way. But but uh, on the success of the War of the Worlds broadcast, of course, got got uh, a contract with the Campbell Soup Company to mm-hmm. sponsor the broadcast. And that was all the Mercury Theater of the Air. It was the Mercury Theater of the Air, or Campbell, the Campbell Playhouse. I don't remember what it was called, but it was Campbell's did the the um, all of the productions that were done on radio, and those productions were excellent. And they all had a lot of stars in it, and they were not solely members of the Mercury Company. But uh, at one time, we had uh, Caesar and Shoemaker's Holiday and Cradle Will Rock, Heartbreak House, and Danton's Death. But Danton's Death was was not a hit. The others were successful. But then Orson gave up. He went to California after the Five Kings, which never came to New York, and it wasn't ready for New York. It it was a brilliant idea, and and Olivier, when he did his film, The Five Kings, used an awful lot of Orson's expertise. On the Campbell's broadcast and on the Mercury broadcast, Mercury on the Air, uh, you had a special role in addition to doing uh, a line or two in each of the shows. What did they call you on on, on the uh, broadcast? Well, it seemed to me I was a gopher all the time. I guess I was an assistant stage manager, and I had and I really had to take care of some of those stars. We had a lot of of important people that were doing those broadcasts. A lot of them had not done radio before. They were theater actors, and uh, it was it was a fascinating interlude. Is there any one or two actors you might remember from that? Well, time I remember period? Helen Hayes, especially because she was a very gracious, nice human being, as well as a very good actress. Maybe a great actress. Who would you consider from the Mercury cast as to be the the best of the performers that you worked with? Well, one of them was Joe Cotton, but Joe Cotton got a very big break because when I had the summer theater in Stony Creek the first year that I was with the Mercury, um, Orson said if I gave his wife a job, he would do a show, and he did a show called Too Much Johnson, and it was... Um, an old, old play that was supposed to be done in Orson's interpretation with a film, which he never got around to doing. Uh, The curtain went up about 9.15 and was over with two intermissions about 10.30. The audience really didn't know what hit them, but we sold out for two weeks, 
And Catherine Hepburn lived in Connecticut. She came to see it twice. And because she liked Joe Cotton, he got a job with her in uh, Philadelphia Story. And his career was well on its way. But then, of course, he had a big part in Orson's Citizen Kane, which came after he opened in New York and Philadelphia Story. But we had a lot of good actors with the Mercury. We had George Kaloris, um, Erskine Sanford, and Orson had brought over uh, Geraldine, Geraldine Fitzgerald for uh, Heartbreak House, and that was her introduction to America. So what is Wells's legacy today in 2005? Well, I guess his legacy, besides the, the films he's left behind, uh, I'm told that his daughter by his last wife, um, an Italian young lady, um, has preserved or has redone Macbeth, which is now called Chimes at Midnight. I guess it was called that originally. You mean Falstaff, don't you? Hmm? That's Falstaff, not Macbeth. Falstaff was Chimes at Midnight. Oh, well, then I don't know what that was called. But at any rate, um, she's revived those films, and they've been shown, I'm told, on television. I I saw the, the Macbeth. I didn't, haven't seen any of the others. You didn't see Othello? Or the... No. Oh. And then he did... Uh, we did something at City Center where he broke his ankle. He did King Lear, but he never made a film on it. Or if he did, I don't know of it. Um, but Citizen Kane, good enough legacy, I think, for anybody to have done. And, of course, the, what they did with Cradle, Cradle Will Rock before it opened um, in New York, and that was before my day, um, they were not, it was a federal theater project, and they were not allowed to um, stay and open it in the theater because of the content of the show. And uh, it was anti-labor, it was anti-capital and pro-labor. And the actors moved to another theater and gave a performance. Instead of a, uh, doing it on the stage, they sat in seats on the stage, and it was like a, a concert. Again, uh, just a, a second uh, thought about uh, War of the Worlds. Do you think that uh, it deserves study? It's in, it's in a lot of textbooks and schools, and it's been reprinted. Howard Koch's script has been reprinted again and again and again, even though, even though uh, John Houseman and Paul Stewart helped write parts of the script. Do you think that that script itself should should be taught and, and the lesson from it should be learned just from the script alone? Well, I think that uh, that Frank Rich's uh, editorial in the Times last Sunday in which he talks about the War of the Worlds and 9-11, I think it's quite important because obviously um, Americans weren't, and I don't think we still are, uh, prepared uh, that 
panic can seize you uh, in all kinds of ways. Um, the panic that we had uh, December 7th, 1941, was a different kind of a panic because it was in Hawaii. It wasn't on our, on our own grounds. 9-11 was. And certainly, if they're going to show 9-11 pictures, they should show the War of the Worlds pictures. At least that's, I think they should. The late William Hers, reflecting on his association with War of the Worlds and Orson Welles on tonight's big broadcast. But don't fear, more Orson Welles is on the way, but this time in a very different light. We have a couple comedies, classic comedies, Fred Allen and Jack Benny featuring Orson Welles. And they're coming your way in the next hour of tonight's big broadcast. We've turned your radio into a time machine. It's known as the big broadcast. And we'll be back right after this. <laughs> 